This episode is brought to you by Select International Tours. I am proud to be a group leader along with our spiritual director, Brother John Michael Paul. Father is the pro-provincial of the Americas for the community of St. John. And for over four years, we have worked together, putting together transformative experiences to the Holy Land and Italy, sacred travel, is an opportunity to be immersed in the geography, the faith, the history, cuisine, and heritage of a people in a way unlike any other. It stays with you for a lifetime. Select International Tours and Cruises is considered one of the premier Catholic travel companies in business for over 35 years. And in these times, choosing a well-respected company is important. Now more than ever, consider joining us on Pilgrimage. Find out more by visiting Select International internationaltours.com slash BTS. That's selectinternationaltours.com slash BTS. St. Gabriel Media presents The Brooke Taylor Show. Encounter, adventure, evangelize. And now your host, Brooke Taylor. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. My name is Brooke Taylor. So question for you, have you slowed down today? Where is your peace meter? Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. And as we might misplace our sunglasses or our keys, sometimes we misplace our peace. I know I've been doing that a lot lately, but not today. So as you will hear with our special guest, I actually brought out the fancy tea set gifted from Cleveland police officer friend, my ministry sister, Vicki. It's an English tea set with flowers, little gold embellishments. So you know this is a special occasion. Do you have a favorite cup? If you can, it's this is it. It's time to break it out. It's a good time to fill it with something really good and just melt into the message of what you're about to hear with Lila Marie Lawler. A few years ago, I recorded an episode entitled Grandma's Love Letter to Modern Moms. My mom joined me. It was a time of us sitting down, kind of opening a doorway back in time to talk about the legacy of family, the priceless jewel of faith tested over time, refined by some very, very difficult times. We might not realize it now, but we are living through and your children and grandchildren will talk about these exact times. If you've heard me speak before, you've seen probably my grandmother's mixing spoon in this talk that I do called Apron of Grace, and I save it as an heirloom. It isn't expensive jewelry or a fancy degree, and and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with saving those things, but it's the spoon over 100 years old now that I look to as an heirloom. But as you'll hear in the show today, we are six decades deep into the radical feminist movement, a devastating shift for women in In terms of the understanding of reproduction, the role of woman in the family, the dignity of marriage and motherhood. And as an example of that, I think about our laundry room right next to the dryer on the wall is the image of the Polish Madonna. And you may know exactly the one. It is a depiction of Blessed Mother, the most important woman who ever lived doing the laundry. (laughs) Homemaking is holy work to be a craftsman of the home. What a radical rebellion in the times in which we live. In our culture, that image of the homemaker being enough is not readily found or appreciated. And I have to say some of the best moms that I have ever known are women who were propelled forward because they didn't have that growing up. And that's the case with today's guest, Lila Marie Lawler. You'll get a chance to hear a bit of her backstory, though I encourage you to dig into her full bio, where she came from, where she is today. And this is a longer show, so hopefully with your fancy cup at the ready, it will be a special time of retreat for you. That's my prayer today. So let's get to it. Let's jump in now. Welcome to the program, Lila Marie Lawler, wife, mother, grandmother, author, observer of the culture, the church, also convert to the Catholic faith. Lila's books include The Little Oratory, which she co-authored, also God Has No Grandchildren, numerous articles, and also an upcoming three-volume work, The Summa Domestica, which we will talk about today. Joining me now, Lila Marie Lawler. Welcome to the show. 
Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I am too. And this is a big deal because due to your uh, appearance on the show today, I not only brought my my teacup out, I have a special teacup, but I actually have my saucer. So this is serious business. Well, girl, you should have told me, where's mine? <laughs> I know we need to have tea with Lila. This is, I even have my doily. That never happens. Sometimes I'll use a doily because you can't just get them at the grocery store and somebody will remark like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, it's just this old fashioned thing that, uh, you know, I certainly did not grow up with. It's my time. So <laughs> we're Renaissance women. We're bringing it back. And so we'll talk about that just yeah. out of the box. One of the compelling parts of your life that I just encourage everybody to look at is the journey home episode because there your background is laid out and I know many are already familiar but just to get to know where you came from where you are today I think it's very noteworthy because your background is intellectual it's Princeton it's secular humanism and coming to the faith actually through the head intellectually the interesting part of that is I think a lot of people actually came to meet you through the doorway of the heart. You had to learn to live liturgically in the home, that heartbeat, and then laying out a roadmap for others and just how God has used you for that to inspire the nobility of marriage and motherhood and for us to embrace that and what that looks like. Has that been your experience too? Yeah. And thank you for mentioning the journey home just because what I find is that people approach me and what I write and what I say, especially on the blog, as if I'm just this person from this very peaceful and traditional background who is trying to share what I had been handed down, even though I do write about that there was this serious disconnect, almost fatal disconnect. And it's quite the opposite. I mean, I've had people say to me, well, you were raised in a calm, peaceful environment, but that's not how it is today. I'm like, no, you do not know how much turmoil and chaos. I was raised in a very progressive area where in 1972, already talking about gay marriage, the subversion in the school that I went to, the fact that my parents divorced, the fact that my father was not Christian, my mother was a lapsed Methodist. I call her a fallen away Methodist. She then, then later did become a good Catholic. But all of those things, you know, that I always assume people kind of do know about me and that I actually think lend credibility to the fact that I rediscovered this a calm, peaceful, traditional world and you can come along on that journey with me. A little bit of that is taken away if you think, oh, I've always been doing this. No, I haven't. And, and that's, I do hope that people realize that I am not coming from a place of, oh, I knew all this and I was given all of it to start with and I never struggled. That is the opposite of what is the case. That's important to highlight because your story is many of our stories, certainly not reinforced by our culture. No. For you, you really had to learn that heart part. And I know this new three-volume work is the last 12 years of that, what you've learned, the wisdom that you've dispensed to others. The, the title again is Summa Domestica, so obviously a nod to Aquinas. Tell us about that. I'm really, really looking forward to this. It's not out yet. You can pre-order it, but give us a quick tour of the book. So the idea of me starting blogging 12 years ago, I was already a mom with a kid in college and another one heading off and seven children, the youngest of whom at that time was just a toddler. But I had already gone through a lot of the issues that today's young woman faces, including just how to discipline your children. I mean, in a society where people at most have 2.0 children, you're not going to get actually good advice. And then, you know, I, I just like everybody else, I was discovering blogs and a lot of young women, God bless them, were on there with their crafts and their various things. And that was always fun to me to do the crafting mom blog, you know, go through and see what everybody was doing. And then you know, I saw discussions and I saw people saying like, whoa, how do you remain creative while you have little children? And then people throwing out things and me sitting there going, oh, no, 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 this is not the way, you know, you don't know how this is going to turn out or dispensing advice from a place of not actually really having a lot of experience. And so when I started blogging, part 
part of it was I too wanted to show my quilting and knitting or, or what have you. And mainly, as I say on the blog and we've talked about over the years, it was a way for um, my grown daughters and me to, to share what we were doing and kind of invite people in. But quickly, I realized that I really want, I had something else to say, which is if you're hearing that you can do it all. If you're hearing that you're, you're toddlers, you'll just feed them organic food and it'll all be great or what have you. No, I have some things to tell you and I really need to express all those things. And in the back of my mind was kind of, these could be rough drafts for ideas for a book later on down the road. Maybe the blog could just be my rough draft. But, you know, there's so much to say um, that will probably never happen. Well, flash forward, you know, and I really started compiling the manuscript for this actually probably five years ago. And at that point, it was this giant, unwieldy mass of information that I had thrown on there willy-nilly as things occurred to me. You know, I did have series. I had certain series like nursing your baby or the postpartum time or how to clean your home, how to do your menus. I mean, that was a huge thing for me was seeing homeschooling parents homeschooling moms saying, we need to learn Latin. Meanwhile, nobody knows what dinner is going to be. And for me, as a really at that point, veteran, however lame and ineffective homeschooling mom, I had a certain number of years under my belt. And it's kind of like, if you do not know what it's for dinner, and if you do not have a moderately clean home, what good does it do to throw Latin at them? They need to have an environment in which they can feel peaceful and able to learn. So those are the kinds of things I had thrown on there. So then struggling with all of that and trying to put it into a form that would be somehow retaining the freshness of leading you through these things in an incremental way, but also being somewhat organized so that you're not just thrown a mass of raw ingredients. That was the challenge. And I really did want to keep that incremental method that I had because one other source of anxiety that I found that I still find in this internet age is the idea that you are going to be given one post, the one thing you know about how to be a wonderful, efficient, fun, you know, successful mom. It's all in like 20 points in one blog post. No, nobody can survive that. All that does is make you feel anxious. So I always tried and continue to try to just present one little aspect of it at a time, which is very funny. And I do think is part of somehow what God asked me to do in this whole long process, because that is not usually my <laughs> my approach. Usually I am kind of like, let me tell you all the things you have. <laughs> um, but in this case, and I really did stick to it over all those years, it was always just, here's this one little thing, just try this. And then, you know, I, then I'd have another post. It's like, now that we've done that, let's do this. You know, the feedback that I had gotten from readers as I went along was always, I can do these things. I can I can do this one thing and then I can do the next step and you really help me. So I did try to keep that in the book. So in some ways it is sort of blog posts strung together, but in other ways it's edited and rewritten so that it's all hopefully somewhat cohesive and orderly. That is really helpful. What you touched on on this program, a theme that comes up a lot is the scattered life versus the attentive life. Again, the little way, focusing on one thing. A book like that too, with the three volume and the different wit and wisdom quips that you share. It's so good because you can just drop in or you can read it cover to cover. And I think it's such a good, potent anti-venom to the poison of radical feminism. But it's evidenced really, you shared a piece of feedback of the thousands you received that I think is is very representative of so many of our stories. I just want to read, it struck me, it was from a, a young woman, a mom. She said, when I first got married at 22, I had been well-trained in the public school system and higher education to despise housework. I was too well-educated to make dinner every night and wash dishes five years into marriage with a newborn baby. And I still could not wrap my head around the fact that someone was not going to come mop my floor for me. Without your frank advice and motherly wake-up calls, I love that, I wonder if I would still have that attitude 
Your help with practical everyday things has increased my satisfaction as a homemaker. It didn't happen overnight. It's taken years, but it is slowly but surely happening. I'm proud of my vocation and I love my family, the culture I am making and my home. That just must bless your socks off when you receive feedback like that. Yeah. And that to me speaks to the great need that is out there. And even more than anything that I have done, the openness that is actually there. Sometimes I do say to these gals who write to me, you know, I really think you would have done fine even without me because you have a beautiful willingness to learn and I think that that is there really, I mean, 50 years, you know, half a century of relentless feminist bitterness has harmed us so much to the point that we don't even think that women are going to be open to hearing that they could have satisfaction in their homes. And I guess being a product of that, I I do cling to that, that, that deep down women do want that. And it's going to be actually the very rare woman who, if you can just show her, if you can just get certain skills, you will experience the satisfaction. You can throw off the bitterness and you can see actually that you're going to be doing a great thing, great with your your life that you never even imagined when you were imagining all these feminist fantasies. There is a certain humility. And and um, and I think, you know, that that letter really captured that and it, it was it was just beautiful i mean that's why i did save it because i was just kind of like yes this is what i'm doing this for i don't know if i'm doing a good job but <laughs> i am doing so <laughs> you are because it's not just the content but it's the orthodoxy of the content there's a lot of faith syncretism out there where we might think we're on the white track but then maybe we're going to a yoga class or we're reading a horoscope because no one ever told us that that is not okay. It's so prevalent. I had Susan Brinkman on and we were talking about how much witchcraft has infiltrated, especially young girls, but it's in our music, things we watch, the books that look innocuous at first glance. I think that's why the orthodoxy, because it trains us. It trains our eye and our ear immediately. Not all of us have what you and your husband, Philip Lawler, who does so much good for our church, can say their background has been well-formed with great intellect and, and scholarly avenues and study. But that's what's so beautiful because about what you do, you distill it down so that we're able to have just a quick boot camp of not only what we need to spot, but how we can make truth, beauty, and goodness come alive in our homes. And that's so important. It really is. It's really, truly the most important task on earth. The home is one of the three important societies, the fundamental societies that Pope Pius XI speaks about, Leo Thirteenth, and all the great popes and the family. And the family has a place and that place is the home. And so the home is truly a sacred place. And it's the way I try to convey also in union with the church of the home where the mother and the father in their union of marriage actually have sacramental grace that is effective every day. It's not something that just happened on the day of your wedding. It's something that continues through for your whole lives as you are married. And then, of course, that flows from the sacramental grace of what happens at the altar in church. And in that sacred energy that goes between those two places that then can create the life that we have together on this earth, but with the idea that this is not our permanent home here, that we are building a kingdom that is for the ages. And this we have to somehow convey to our children as well. And that's the thing is, another thing that I always try to keep in mind for the readers is you do want to be peaceful. You do want to be happy in what you do and have satisfaction, but it's for a reason you're forming souls and little, it's actually a proverb that I made the title of the book that just came out, God has no grandchildren is that, you know, each person is, must become a child of God. God does not have grandchildren just because you're a child of God doesn't mean that your children will be children of God. And God instituted it so that the formation that they receive in the home in connection with the church is going to give them that childhood, the sacramental childhood. 
in truth, beauty, goodness, that women through the beauty of being endowed with femininity naturally has an eye for, a gift for, a heart for, even if we don't feel like it. I have a dear friend, started as a listener, became a very good friend, and we talk every day day now. She's in California, and we do the TBG challenge. And every day, I've talked about this on the show, I love how it has truly helped transform my ordinary days. So we'll send each other something, which TBG stands for truth, beauty, goodness. And maybe it's just cleaning up our our prayer corner and stopping to recognize the steam coming from the coffee and our open liturgy of the hours book. Or maybe it's the smell of a fresh kiddo out of the bathtub. And we can take that all the way down to the micro, making the sign of the cross over our seatbelt. I want to get into the home, the kids kitchen, the nuts and bolts here of uh, Sumo Domestica, the apron. That's one of your popular posts I know on your blog. Uh, It's called Housewifely. And was thinking we should start an apron association because that is like the way to my heart. So I, I would go around and speak and I wrote an apron prayer, even oh. had, they're, they're sold out now, but they were pins that would go on the apron. It would be a, a miraculous medal. And I heard from some women that their mothers or grandmothers would actually pin a miraculous medal inside on their bra. So it would be close yeah. to their heart. Mm-hmm. And these these are things that's like, how beautiful and, and quiet, you know, the hidden life. It might seem to the rest of the world not very exciting, but it is the most exciting. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, on the Last Supper, he took the the form of a joyful servant, a towel and wrapped it around his waist. So when we put the apron on, what a beautiful opportunity to serve our family, to kind of wash their feet, so to speak. But I need these reminders because I struggle with being a good, joyful servant. I'm I'm often in a bad mood or I feel lonely or depressed or no one appreciates me or understands me. We need to kind of recalibrate our vision to see what a privilege it is for this short, brief time that these souls are in our home. I also love the femininity of the apron. And I think back to my grandmother and my mom, they were in their house dresses. And today it might be just our bleach stained pants. (laughs) You advocate for clothes line and hanging our fresh towels out on the clothesline and ironing. So so talk about that because I think it comes down to being a craftsman of the home, a craftswoman of the home. Attend to the yeah. task at hand, attending well. Well, I love your more spiritual view of the symbolism of the apron. And I think that's beautiful and you need to send me your apron prayer. <laughs> I will. But, but for me, the idea of it, my idea maybe is more mundane, but what I've noticed with people who are somewhat in the grip of feminism is that they are also, so on one hand, as that gal said in that letter, too good to do certain mundane tasks on the one hand. On the other hand, I find that women today, and this has to do with social media and you know the what we can sum up with calling it the Pinterest view, is that they are strangely susceptible to a perfection that is not realistic. So, you know, we have our Pinterest look, our Pinterest view of the mom with the apron at her kitchen counter, and that view can entail subtle hints of wealth, of prosperity, of a lack of (laughs) turmoil and chaos that's brought about by, say, homeschooling your you know, 11D children. And that view of perfection can also paralyze us. So for me, putting the apron is almost a gesture towards simply being competent. I have come to see that having competence as our goal instead of perfection on the one hand or complete rejection on the other, but simply this is a task and I'm going to be competent at it. And one important aspect of being competent at it is I'm not going to have this subconscious idea that my clothes are going to get soiled if I really dig in. So if I put on an apron, I, I can remove that worry. And now I can go ahead, I can grapple with this big mass of dough or this big pot of tomato sauce or this spattering bacon or whatever it is, I can go out and I have a panoply of aprons. So I have my heavy twill apron for going out and, you know, lugging that bucket of tomatoes. I even have an apron that I made for collecting herbs and eggs when I go out to the garden and get the eggs from the chicken. I have the cute apron. I have the one that you have, the 
awesome linen one that my daughter-in-law gave me that you have to iron, but that's a good one to put on before Thanksgiving dinner because you still look pretty, but you're also able to go ahead and haul that turkey around. So for me, this idea of competence, that's one thing. Then the other thing is the idea in that same post about, you know, that I called housewifely, I had the hanging up the laundry on the line. Why do I think that that can contribute to us feeling housewifely? what I call housewifely, my editor said, housewifely, do you mean housewifery? And I was like, no, I like to say housewifely because <laughs> it gives me that feeling of I am a housewife and thank God for washers and dryers. I love the fact that I can get, process the laundry and, you know, it goes through. But sometimes we can become, and I am somebody who emphasizes efficiency. My father was an engineer and that was his specialty. And I definitely got trained that way, you know, do things the fast, good way, but we can be too efficient. And sometimes we can view these tasks, which form the everyday life of the housewife as burdens, drudgery, and things that get in the way of us doing more important things. But actually, Taking that laundry, taking the time to go ahead and hang it out on the line, suddenly we find we have slowed down, our breathing becomes more reasonable, we're thinking of things, we're noticing things. I can stand out in the garden hanging up my laundry, and it's true, I do see the weeds and I do notice what needs to be mown, etc., etc., but I also see the beauty of the flowers, I hear the birds, hearing the birds, this is something we have almost lost. And again, yay, air conditioning, it's great. But at the same time, when do we go outside and just hear the birds? It actually gives a lot of joy. There's something about birdsong that that moment you can be thankful and grateful for your life. And even if your life is at that moment carrying a heavy <laughs> basket of wet laundry, I don't know, there's just a, a calming thing that happens to you that can make you say, this life is a good life. I don't have to rush through it. I can take it, each task at its own pace, and that will help me. The third thing I want to say about putting on that apron is that I think that the husband, something happens to him when he sees his wife doing a job, a task that she has to do the right way. You know, she's put on her apron, and I think it incites in him great manly qualities of wanting to protect, wanting to provide, being grateful, and what our religion of Christianity teaches us with Christ on the cross is that the greatest man is the servant of all, and he will die for them. So I think the wife being housewifely helps the husband be husbandly, and if she's always rushing to go on to something more important, something's lost with him. And then the family suffers. So that's kind of, you know, seems like a lot, a big weight for the, the apron to bear. But but those are some thoughts that come to me, um, you know, when I'm writing something like that. For the radical feminists, they hear you and their head wants to explode <laughs> because they think that is subjugation. That image of a woman tethered to the iron is one of slavery. slavery. But we know like the, the wonderful paradox is the liberation that comes from living out your vocation and there is dignity and beauty in that. I, I think of a great, beautiful aunt that I had. Everything she did was beautiful, even ironing. And it was truly like a work of art. I had never seen anyone. I, she ironed the curtains and it was incredible. And she took such great joy and her family felt it. And what you said about your breathing slowing down, we are in such a synthetic screen, lights, and mirrors age, we recognize there's something more and deeper. And to embrace something like that is so important. And you came from the other side, from a broken home, from feminism. So how did you make that paradigm shift? Was it difficult? Or once you started reading C.S. Lewis and your conversion started, did that all melt away because everything had its proper order? I mean, I think I had two layers going on at the same time for a really long time father who was from Egypt, he was Muslim, and he was an intellectual, he was a university professor, and he was absolutely, being a professor is the highest 
thing. You are going to go to graduate school. This is what I want for you. But at that time in, in Egypt, women went to college. My stepmother had gone to college and gotten her degree. That was normal for there to be women taking their place in society. So it's not as if his view was what we think of today as Muslim. He was very much encouraging and insistent on me pursuing a professional life. Certainly my education was all geared towards that. There's no question that I was going to go to college and then on to graduate school. And I would tell people in high school, I would say, well, I'll go to grad school. And maybe after that, you know, I'll think about getting married. At the same time, I just wanted to get married and have children. So those two things were going on at the same time. I had a very unhappy childhood. I was an only child. My parents were divorced. My mother was not stable. It was really rough. And I wanted a home and I wanted to make a home and I was going to have a lot of children because I did not want to inflict on a child that purposeful only childhood that was so lonely for me. What happened was that I did meet my husband when I was very young. We did get married. He's 10 years older than I. So when we got married, he was 28. I was 19. He shortly turned 29. And um, I always knew that I would not work when I had a child. And I was still in college, so I, I was going to college. I was a sophomore in college when I, when after our wedding. And then I just wanted to have children, and I just didn't see the point of paying for tuition. I felt like I could read. I'd look at the syllabus of a course I was taking and say, I can read these books. I don't need to be paying for this. We should be having children. <laughs> and it just, it's almost like, that's just my personality. Like I just went ahead with what I wanted to do without really feeling that I had to answer to a lot of people about it. And I was willing to accept the loneliness and it was very lonely. There were no, very few other women to be friends with because I lived in Washington, D.C., and when I'd go to the playground, there would be nannies there. So I'd talk to the nannies, <laughs> and some of them said some interesting things. There was a nanny once who, you know, we were talking about the two little children who were playing. She was from Jamaica, and she said, our our mother and father, that's what she called them, our mother and father want to don't want to have another baby, but I think they should have a baby that brother and sister need a, another baby. And I remember at the time of this, 20 years old, you know, and I'm sitting there at the playground thinking, well, this is very strange that the nanny has a say in whether or not there's, I told mother, we need to have another baby. And like, that is odd. But at the same time, she's taking care of them. She sees their, their needs and their wants. She actually does have a voice. Maybe mother and father need to think about <laughs> how they're arranging their lives. That's definitely made me think about this whole paradigm mm -hmm. of, well, the nanny's just going to raise the children. Um, maybe you're changing the actual nature of your marriage. That is a whole can of worms because, again, it goes back to order, the dynamics of the cultural shift. I want to ask about the Holy Family is our perfect prototype, but we are not Our Lady. And... I know my child is not Jesus. So there, there is the reality of we are fallen in, in the bad days. We're in the trenches. We are lonely. You're lonely. You're struggling. That's hard. You have a really well-loved post. It's one of your popular ones, again, called How to Rescue a Bad Day. Can you take us through that? I have been there. And the loneliness, especially, I mean, I think people today cannot actually really imagine what the loneliness was like in the 80s when you are a mom raising your children in a big urban area. You're in that group of people who certainly the expectation is that you would have a profession. You don't. So you're kind of suffering the ignominy of that in certain ways. You simply cannot easily make friends because there's no internet. There is no chat groups. There's no Facebook groups. There's no way to meet people. There's no blogs. Maybe a parallel is last year when things were so shut down. At least I could go to the library in the playground. And, you know, I think I was really feeling for the moms last year because I think I would have gone insane. So I have been through it. And my ideas that I was trying to put forth in that post kind of center around encouragement to just try to do a little thing. Yes, you're having a bad day, but you're going to get through it. And especially if you can just know what's for dinner, which is a big theme on my blog, is I would say 
73.6% of job satisfaction among housewives comes from not knowing what the heck they're going to have for dinner. <laughs> and I, too, am sorely tempted to run out and <laughs> be that person who just goes, you know, orders dinner and whatever and has a great career and doesn't have to think about it. So I feel like if you can grapple with that and to that end, on a bad day, it's really helpful to know that there are certain things you can pull out of the pantry and freezer. Everybody will be fine. So it does take a certain amount of, maybe on other days, plan things out a bit so that when those inevitable bad days come, you aren't completely sunk. Maybe you're going to go there. I, was it that post you were talking about washing your hair and I think cleaning the floor? Was it that post? So, yep. So just like Maybe you're just not feeling happy because your hair, that's what I would say to my husband. You know, I realize that when my hair is dirty, I really just don't feel happy. So just remind me to, to wash my hair. And then another time I was like, I realize that when the floor is dirty, I just feel really bad about life. So you can tell me, just wash the kitchen floor. You'll feel better. So then he'd say, like, is this a hair day or a floor day? Which one should I tell you? <laughs> but again, it's the little way. You know that when you're sick, you get up and you take a shower and it's like, okay, thank you, Lord. Warm water, I'm fresh, and just, yeah, a good hair day. <laughs> At least your hair is clean, you know? And that, that's that's what I think about it is go ahead and just clean up a little. You, you could have a good stash of little videos that you know beforehand are good for the kids. 20 minutes of just everybody kicking up for a bit is fine. And then at the end, you know, and I do think you need to identify those things about yourself. Like I have realized if X is not in place, I, if I'm already not surviving well, it will cause me to plummet. So address that X, whatever X is. For me, it was, I had long heavy curly hair and it was just like such a chore to deal with so if it wasn't clean i didn't feel happy it's true <clears throat> that having a, a dirty kitchen floor can make you feel bad about life and it doesn't actually take that long to just quickly mop it up but then at the end i also say even if <clears throat> you do all those things or don't do them and it's still a wretched day you really do need to know that god sees you where you are, wherever you are, he sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he wills for you this moment. You can just love him back and you can just accept that, abandon yourself to the moment, say, yeah, it's just not a good day. This happens, onwards, begin again tomorrow. It's gonna be good, it's all gonna be good. I think sometimes, especially in this age of, of social media where we don't often confront ourselves completely alone and disconnected, I think we can sometimes feel that if we're not receiving a certain feedback from other people, like I haven't gotten some likes from something I post on Instagram or what have you, we can feel a real sense of lack of worth. And so we always do have to return to God is here, the saints, Our Lady, our guardian angel, they're here. They're here with me no matter how alone I feel. And they love me. Out of charity, I have to good to myself. And I have to just say, it's good because who can ask for more than that? Last night, you're making me think of wonderful Ukrainian priest in the Byzantine church, Father Mirren, and he gave a homily last night and he was saying, the cross is meant to heal us. If it is not healing you, it's false cross. He's saying this in his Ukrainian accent, it's false cross. But the true cross comes to heal us. And I really appreciate that you acknowledge when sometimes these things don't work. And cleaning the floor and washing the hair is not frivolous. It is a gift. There are seasons where it's going to last longer. It's okay to be down. Sometimes we're grieving. We need to grieve over things. I can say my entire life as a mother prepared me I didn't know it at the time for what we would receive in the diagnosis of our daughter with autism and remains still the cross that we carry together as a family. And it's very difficult because one of her areas of struggle is mental rigidity in almost a reverse OCD, meaning that she cannot stand her room clean. Every morning and every afternoon, it is 
squalor. And even if you remove everything from the room, she will find things and bring them in. And one of her primary triggers is she loves to rip books. And as lovers of literature and beautiful books, it has been, I had in kindergarten, there was a children's author that came to our school His name was Sid Hoff, and I had a book that he autographed, and we had that under lock and key, and somehow she got it, and she destroyed the book. And this is difficult because I can sometimes legitimize my bad mood. I feel in my heart a reason to be constantly in the state of grump because it's like an insane loop. It's never going to be clean. Her room is always a mess. It's difficult because it is also very isolating. I love what you said. It's so true. You can take these quick snapshot images of the time warp wife, the 1950s in her apron and her hair done woman. And especially today, the influencers with their you know great decor and everything and just think I am failing and I am alone. I know all of these things. I know the devotions. I know that I need to offer this up. But sometimes we get to a state of burnout. And I know you talk about this as a homeschool mom because you know what it's like. That's, of course, where the enemy wants to get into is to say you're alone. No one understands all of these things that we know lurk under the surface. Yeah, I think it's so going back to something you said about ironing, like a feminist would say, you know, you're tethered to the iron and that's slavery. I think it's so interesting. One of the things I noticed about the desire to buy new clothes is that when you buy a new t-shirt, one of the things about it is that it's crisp and smooth. So if you get annoyed with your clothing because it's rumpled and stained, I mean, there are people who live this way every season they buy a new wardrobe for everybody in their household. Now, you're not going to want to have a lot of children and you're not going to be able to afford to have a lot of children if you are constantly tossing out all your clothes and buying a whole new wardrobe at retail. That indeed is going to become very expensive. It's actually a kind of slavery to think that you have to have new and expensive and crisp and smooth things to be happy. Whereas I, the housewife standing at the ironing board, ironing my eight-year-old blouse, I'm actually free because it is going to be crisp and smooth when I'm done. I also know how to launder it. I also even know how to turn a collar on my husband's shirt so that the nice torn and tattered side shows and I can actually get double life out of that shirt. That's actually kind of, it's an economic freedom. So my time that I'm spending at the ironing board, taken in you know one narrow sense, is actually the opposite of slavery. I'm actually enabling my family to have a better standard of living because I'm taking care of the clothes. But at the same time, while doing that, I'm also there, you know, when my children were younger, I will admit I did iron when my children were younger. I scheduled my ironing for their nap time, the ones that were, you know, maybe in danger by that cord hanging down when they were napping, or maybe their outside playtime, I would iron the clothes. The secret is, for me was, it's quiet while you're ironing. And that solitude can be frightening if you're already lonely, and you're already suffering from a lot of things, such as the things you're talking about. And each of us in our lives, we have suffering. You know, yours is the challenge and struggle that you have with your daughter and and certain behaviors that she has. Every person has something that they are struggling with and that seems to them to be a failure in their life. And you can be afraid of being alone with that. And solitude can seem frightening. But if you can, if you can have come to the point where you have an understanding of how to get right with God in admitting that, yes, I failed and I'm a failure and I need you, Lord. And then coming to a place where you can be alone and think your thoughts and and not be frightened by them, then actually ironing is freedom because you're there. You're just by yourself and you're doing something that's good for the family. A lot of people talk about self-care in a way that I just absolutely cannot handle because what they mean is indulgence. And that's why in that post I did put in those little things of go ahead and just think for a minute about what would be for dinner or do something about your floor if necessary. Because sometimes I think we are wallowing and the way to care for ourselves is actually 
to do something that's the opposite of wallowing and ask a little more of ourselves. Then comes the point where we are, have actually tried that. We're actually at rock bottom. And that's where, you know, God gives us those times so we can say, Lord, you alone can do, make of this mess that is me something that is going to be worthy of you. And that's by what you did on the cross. So all of those things, I think, I think women and especially mothers are uniquely positioned to, to think about all those things. Let's use our minds. Let's use our spirit. Let's, let's really bring something good and holy back into the little normal things that we somehow have been taught to despise. Let's not do that. Perseverance, constancy, and patience are all dispositions to carry burdens well. And I love what you said that we are in a position that we can think about these things. I think we need to develop those. And I try to examine that. What is it that I can offer up? What virtue could I work on in this moment? Perseverance, constancy, patience. Patience is the ability to suffer well. And I know in our house, we really struggle with that. And that the suffering we endure has purpose. And there are so many masters that we can follow in that from Our Lady to obviously our Lord, the saints. My son wants to be a Navy SEAL. And on his rosary, I have St. Therese of Lisieux because I said she should be the patron of Navy SEALs. When you see how she suffered and how she endured and a way that no one would know. The same with Mother Teresa of Calcutta. On her face was the countenance of joy, as it says in the Psalms, that though she was suffering, and it's not that you're faking it, it really is a form of asceticism and learning to develop those dispositions, perseverance, constancy, patience, to offer up that, as Father Marin said, this is a cross that is meant for my healing. And there, of course, will be times where we're we're asked to carry things that are insurmountable, a death, a loss, a, a great devastation. Only through God's grace, I think, are we made ready for that by practicing these small things every day. Yeah, yeah. Even you're in, you could devote yourself to your family and your entire family could turn against you. These are the crosses that God, He's free to send us whatever is needed for our sanctification. So, you know, I don't want to give anyone the idea that I'm saying, here's the Summa Domestica, you're going to do these things, you're going to be devoted in these certain ways, and then you'll have a happy, loving family. And, you know, I do think that the world is set up so that virtue is fruitful and following God's commands gives us our flourishing. But all we have to do is read the book of Job. All we have to do is look at the life of Our Lady. All we have to do is look at the cross. And we know that this is not a prosperity gospel. This is a gospel of suffering. We have to be ready to accept whatever suffering God sends us. That said, I think there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. When you accept the duties of marriage and motherhood, there's certain things that have to happen. Nobody's going to come in and make dinner for you unless you say, oh yeah, well, we'll just prioritize wealth. And then that way, we, you know, somebody will make dinner for me. Okay, but what if you lose everything? What if the power goes out? Sometimes the power goes out. Where I live, the power is always going out at random times. I often think, you know, would I know what to do? Can I, you know, and I, I have certain strategies for this eventuality that I, you know, immediately I have candles that I put in the bathroom so that you're not completely in the dark. But we got to know how to live. So one important thing about my book, it is really aimed towards what I consider to be just prudence, which is living on one income alone. So even if you have two incomes, that that you would decide early on that your marriage and family life would be based on one income alone. To me, this is only prudence. To me, it's madness to live on two incomes because if one person, for some reason, cannot produce that income, you are sunk. So then people are like, well, it's a privilege. You have a privilege, whatever. We have some money now because all our kids are gone. It's true, kids are really expensive. (laughs) Once your kids are gone, you're suddenly like, oh, yeah, they were right. But all those years, <laughs> you know, we scrimped and scraped. And that, so a lot of what I'm presenting in the book is how do you accomplish this? You can live on one income alone. Oh, you can't today. You really can't. I had one one person say to me, well, you know, today people have mortgages. Uh, yeah, I have a mortgage. I truly did not arrive here from the 17th century. You know, I understand about mortgages and health costs and such things. And I'm saying that you can do it and I will help you. I, I just had this discussion with a friend and 
for her, she's afraid. She was, she's always had to rely on herself. And so now the idea of coming together, it's, it's really comes down to trust. So we were talking about that and she said, but people change and you think you know them. And oh my goodness, can you imagine? I mean, put that mentality in any other situation. Would you get in a car? Would you get on a bus? Would you get in an airplane? Well, what if something happens to the pilot? I mean, you got to trust him. And you know what? If you walk on there and you look at him like, what are you doing with this plane? I don't really trust you. It's going to affect how he does his job. Well, likewise with your husband, if your attitude is with your husband, I don't know. I don't know if you can provide. I'm not sure. Maybe I have to do X, Y, or Z. How do you think that affects his morale, his willingness, his even his creativity. I think he is made, men are made by God to provide and protect. Are there situations where something happens and the husband cannot? Yes, there are. And God will provide for you. I think that it's wise to have skills and it's also super wise not to base your family life on two incomes so that if the time comes that you're the wage earner that you can do it and not have to sustain something that's unsustainable and there are prudential matters both of the husband and the wife should have life insurance for sure do it while you're young it won't cost very much and it'll give you peace of mind but beyond that yeah you just gotta trust and you gotta show that you trust before you wrap up, it's challenging because the width and breadth of what you write about spans every <laughs> imaginable topic. And it's, I feel, almost a scandal to not touch on some of the meaty things you've been writing about lately. So I hope that we can have you back. I do want to ask you about using our voice in the marketplace, traditional Catholic women in our culture are so important. We need to hear from them. They're witness now more than ever. But I'll use myself as an example. I acknowledge I am not an expert on every facet of civic life and science and geopolitics. And I don't need to weigh in on all of these things. But if we never speak, aren't we absent from these important discussions, of course, in our home and to our children, that's a given. But I also mean on social media. And I want to just read a quick quote. I'm reading with my 15-year-old son. We're reading Solzhenitsyn. It's very difficult as a read aloud, I will say that. I was oh, like, yeah. whoa. You know, when you're reading silently, you can just kind of skip over. Some yeah, yeah, skip difficult. But then I thought it was so interesting because I've recently, and, and the listeners of my show know this because they've been through this with me, pulled away a little bit and just trying to make my home a Nazareth, trying not to feel like I need to say anything on social media. But then I was reading this and he's talking about the sweeping arrests in the Soviet Union of of millions of innocent people and how many talked about 1937 and 1938. But he said that was just one wave. And he said before that came the wave of 1929 and 1930, the size of a good river Obe, which drove 15 million peasants, maybe even more, out into the taiga and the tundra. But peasants are silent people without a literary voice, nor do they write complaints or memoirs. And so there were no statistics and there were no voices. We didn't know about them until that point. They were lost to history. And then it reminded me after reading that, it's like, well, we need to speak. Finding that balance between being obsessed because every day I feel my peace diminishes insofar as I am online and I'm on the news and and trying to find that sweet spot. Is it even possible? So I think this is something that each person just has to assess for himself. The way you assess it is you say, what what are my primary duties and responsibilities? And I've got to be there for, you know, I've got to have a time every day where I'm talking to God. I have to be present to my husband. To a certain extent, I think we have to be informed so that we are able to talk to him. We have to be careful that we're not ranting about the terrible things that we know even probably he agrees with us, but it's very easy for the man and the wife, for the man to feel that, that you know how women always say, um, he doesn't realize this is what I'm hearing when he says X, Y, or Z, like the house is dirty. He doesn't realize I'm hearing you're a failure. Well, when we say they're going to come and take away our children, we don't realize what he hears is you, my husband, cannot protect our family. So we have to be careful that we're saying, I want to know what you think about this. Tell me your thoughts and not, this is so terrible because we're undermining 
the very thing that keeps us going, which is his sense of confidence that he can protect us. So something for women, I think, to be aware of. Then with we have to be educating our children. So for that, we need a certain amount of peace. You know, that's a great quote from Solzhenitsyn, and it's great that you're reading that with your son. And I think we as mothers today have got to be sure that our children and our husbands really have delegated this to us as homeschooling mothers, that we are educating our children in these broad, important, fundamental ideas. So that is going to take a certain amount of of time every day. And then insofar as we, so with our friends, with our, the people we talk to every day, we've got to be ready. We've got to be ready to tell the truth. And we have to say, you know, did you read this latest thing? Or are you aware of such and such? You know, I had, I met someone in the line at the store. She remarked on my daughter's children being there. And suddenly we're in this discussion about she's going to take her kids out of school because, you know, not only do they have to wear masks, but it's critical race theory and gender ideology. I mean, literally in five minutes, this is the conversation we're having. And I'm like, yes, do it. (laughs) It's worse than you think. It's been going on for decades. Do it. So those are the in-person conversations. And then insofar as we can get onto whatever social media we're on, say what we have to say in a charitable but firm way, and get off again, then I think we should do it. If it's disturbing our peace, I mean, there are times I open Twitter and I just, I can feel my heart just like simultaneously sinking and racing. And like I have to say, this is not, this is not good. This is not good for me right now. Then there's other times I know I can just get on there and say what I have to say. I too have pulled back. And what I did was I started another blog that unlike mother, like daughter, I really like to have pictures. Because I feel that it draws people in. Not a great photographer, but to me, that's just part of the hominess of it. So I started another blog that I call Happy Despite Them that is gives me permission to just post something without a picture. <laughs> to say what I would otherwise, if it was something I would say on Facebook, to say it on the blog, I can then post that link on Facebook and people can talk about it. That helps me. That is my strategy for not getting stuck into the time suck of all of a sudden I'm arguing with someone. I mean, I have no idea. This person could even be a bot. It could not be a person. Maybe it might be a fake account that is just sucking me in. The sole purpose is simply to waste my time. So you've got to be savvy about that because these things exist and they're more prevalent than you think. I had someone talking to this person on Twitter, what should I do? And I looked at that person's handle that account's handle, and I said to her, I don't think this is a real person. You need to just block this. Like, this is not. So you have to have a certain kind. Of, and I'm learning myself. You know, I am learning. I, there's a lot that I don't know. I, I recognize there's times that I've gone too far. It's a learning process. But I agree. We do have to default on the side of speaking the truth. I do think so. Every platform has different challenges, whether it's the the visual on Instagram that is inspiring, but also intimidating sometimes to what you have on Twitter and Facebook, that personal assessment, that discernment. I think it's also not only important what you're saying on those social media sites, but also who you're following. And I would really encourage people to curate their feed. Get rid of, if it gives you a lack of peace, get rid of it. Especially on Instagram, fill your feed with the people who are actually doing things and doing it in a realistic way. Fill your feed with people who are making good bread and who are raising good tomatoes. They're going to give you some information. <laughs> you're learn something. It's and- TBG. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and, and get rid of the ones that are day after day. They're kind of like emoting and posting something that's unattainable. It's nice. It's nice for them, but it's maybe not helping you. Whatever it is that you feel like, just ask yourself, is this helping me? No. And just mute. <laughs> because but I think that can be insidious. I know learning as I first years ago, probably 10 now, got on Instagram. Oh, I'm going to follow this person because they have a large following. Sometimes people are given a platform, but they may be in error. They may be not doctrinally solid. And I think we have to be careful. And it's so hard because, you know, in colleges, you have the Newman guy. There isn't really a gold standard that we can say, okay, these people are safe. And I am not casting aspersions. I just think it's very 
important that we are cautious because there is a lot of new age stuff out there, even among our faith. There's sometimes like innovations of just hot takes, you know, like a hot take. Also, so this is the importance of immersing yourself in actual good spiritual reading, the church fathers, the saints, things that are from the whole over the centuries, you know, as Chesterton says, Catholic Church has treasures from all the centuries. Just make sure that you are totally immersed in them because when somebody gives their hot take and you are hearing this, there needs to be something that that goes off in your mind and you're kind of like, that doesn't actually fit with, I can't picture St. John Chrysostom saying this. I don't know if uh, Thomas Aquinas would agree. Those are good, healthy instincts because even that person themselves has read a lot or thought a lot or they had a great conversion or whatever. That doesn't mean that they are immersed in all the things. So we do have to protect ourselves. It is us. We can go down a very bad spiritual path. Whatever we're hearing, we just got to be careful. Always be testing it. The main part of our day in terms of what's being input should be things like, you know, you're actually reading Solzhenitsyn, the saints, the church fathers, these, you know, scripture, that we got to have a good background to grapple with all this. Tell us how we can get the book. And I also, before we wrap up, I want to plug a few things, your blogs. I want to plug the, the podcast that I recently listened to that was so good with, with Crisis Magazine. But first and foremost, Summa Domestica, right now... November is that the release date? Yeah. So um, I've been told November twenty third, and it's called the Summa Domestica Order and Wonder in the Home, and it is in three volumes. The first volume is the home. The second volume is so housekeeping, and the third volume is menu planning and so on and other very specific household duties. And this will be very presentation quality in a beautifully produced hardcover in a slip case. So I'm very excited about that with illustrations by my daughter, Deirdre Folly. And that is should be available for pre-order on Amazon. Also, that my book, God Has No Grandchildren, which is a reading of the encyclical Cassie Canubi. So it's a guided reading. It's something that you can do with a group. Cassie Canubi is an amazing encyclical. So I really want to get that in people's hands. And that is available on Amazon in hardback and softcover. It's the second edition. So the Kindle is not this Kindle is the first edition. This is the second edition. It also has a an appendix, which is an essay that I wrote about the teaching of Cassie Canubi in contrast to the teaching of Amoris Letizia. The Little Oratory, which is praying in the home, and that is also available from Sophia Institute Press or also on Amazon. The blogs, happy despite them. I really encourage people just to sign up to get that in your email. It'll just be one email with the post. It's not, I'll never sell your email or anything or give it away or anything. And then um, like mother, like daughter. And just this morning to about a half a dozen people, I sent the Crisis Magazine episode you did, The Incompatibility of Catholicism and Feminism, which was not something we were able to really tackle in depth today, but I really encourage people to listen. It's very thought-provoking. I think it will be difficult. This may be the first time they've ever heard some of the concepts that you talk about in terms of women, laity, and the role in the church, but it's so important. And I think like anything we love, we desire the highest and best. And you're coming at it from a really solid theological and academic aspect, as well as your heart. And my experience. So I've watched feminism. I've watched it from the beginning. And yeah. I would love to have you on about that. And we are excited about Summa Domestica. And I hope that we can have you on again and just pray for the fruits of your work. I appreciate it so much. Lila Marie Lawler, thank you. And I hope we can do this again. In the meantime, you are armed at the ready with an arsenal of great resources, her blogs. Her new, I just ordered God Has No Grandchildren. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. Also already pre-ordered the Summa Domestica, which I think will be perfect because of the timing a great Christmas gift, gift for your sister, your daughter, your friend, yourself, <laughs> and a lot to really just think about today. Thank you again. God bless you, Lila. And please share your feedback. Would love to know your thoughts, any insights you have on what Lila shared. Show at gmail.com is the easiest way you can reach out. Also, while I'm thinking about it, and I still have my teacup here with the saucer, <laughs> is on December 4th, if you are an Ohio friend, I will be speaking at an Advent 
tea. And I'm a big proponent of really building in some sacred days during December because we know how hectic it is. The month flies by. And if you already have even just one day of recollection, it can really set the tone for the month. So I love the timing of this. It's on December 4th, St. Ambrose Church in Brunswick, Ohio. The time is 11 to 2, and I'll be the speaker. There's also tea, fellowship, time of sacred prayer, and so much more. So again, that's December 4th, a Saturday for the Advent tea. If you're in Ohio, we'd love to see you. And if you would like me to come to your church, speaking events are just, at least for me, just now starting to pick up again. And I'm so excited about it because the virtual, the Zoom has been fine, but you know it's not the same. And please reach out, thebrooktaylorshow at gmail.com. That's the easiest way to reach out. God bless you, friends, and keep you. May the Lord's peace remain with you. Jesus, I trust in you. I'll see you next week. God bless you. The Brooke Taylor Show is produced by Mark Cumming. Find out more at comminghomestudio.com. Brooke's audio project, Pray With Me, a treasury of Catholic family prayers, teaches families how to pray the Hail Mary and the Our Father in Latin, plus so much more. Pray with Brooke's family and learn the beauty and history behind some of our most beloved prayers. Pray With Me is available on Amazon or CD Baby. Find Brooke's two devotionals, Choose Joy and Choose Hope, on Amazon or brooktaylor.us. To book Brooke for your church or event, please contact St. Gabriel Media at gmail.com.